My, uh, my big question for you this morning is this. The question is, what are you building? I'm not talking about the physical building out here. The question is, what, what are you building? Every one of us is building something with, with our lives, with our efforts, with uh, how we spend our time and our, our resources, with how we talk to people. We're building something. And the question is, what are you building? And so to answer that, we want to look at this ancient city, which here is called Babel, which became Babylon. And this is a city that is an interesting way to sort of anchor your understanding of history. This is, this is a turning point in this, this city. Today it's Baghdad in Iraq. It's on the Tigris River. This was, um, this was a place where things turned significantly, from what was the, the time of the flood and then the, after the flood, how the world was uh, developing into all of this history that we have on record from the time of Babylon and these Chaldeans into all of the records that we have today. So it's sort of a way to understand and anchor in your mind a connection between uh, this ancient history and then bring, you, bring yourself up to this modern day. To understand what's happening here, we, we leave off with Noah and his family after the flood, and God makes a covenant. God makes a covenant with Noah, and it's a, a promise uh, for kindness, for mercy, with a, with a symbol of that, which is a rainbow. And then when we get into this, what's called the Table of Nations, in the chapter preceding ours from today, we see that uh, God was doing something where, he, where there are these nations that are going out, and, and 70 Seventy nations, uh, ethnic groups across the world at that time, are identified. It's called the Table of Nations. Specifically, to understand chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel, you look at verses 8 through 11, and this man named Nimrod. Okay, Nimrod was sort of this, um, this very successful leader. He was strong. He was a hunter. He's called... Hey, it's a funny name, isn't it? Like, he's such a Nimrod. <laughs> Um, it's, worth, it's worth laughing at. But he was regarded as a strong leader, and he was sort of a despotic leader. He began this city that's called Babel. And then later in his life, he goes over and he starts another city in Assyria called Nineveh. Now, you've heard of those. And you can trace, in fact, with the archaeology of these two cities, the connection between them that then goes to Turkey, that then goes into the Roman Empire, and it's fascinating to see how the beginnings of many of these things in these great empires began there in Babylon. And so we look at Babel and we look at this guy, Nimrod, who was building something. And when he was building, he was defying God. And that's the important thing to understand about him. And what God did about it was he changed the language of all these people that are sort of unified in this effort to build this tower in Babylon. So... Whenever people hear about this account of Babylon, they'll, I think in their minds they'll have this fuzzy, like, was it true, was it not true, how much of it is just a, a legend or a myth? Well, let me, let me uh, follow the argument of a historian named Stuart Vahavich, okay? And he traces some of the archaeological things from some of these ancient civilizations that actually point to what happened in Babel, okay? Now, this is a little bit like we're becoming... 
archaeologists and we're, we're discovering what was in these ancient things. So to me, reading these things, I always feel a little bit like Indiana Jones. So as I read these, this is sort of like, you know, you picture Indiana Jones reading these tablets. And you have to understand, they used these tiny, short little phrases back then, so they would, they would chisel words into rocks. And these are the things that we find from, from longer than 2,000 years before Christ, okay? Now, this is the argument that Vahavich makes. He argues that we must not make the mistake of assuming that the accounts in the Bible are simply legend for this reason, because, of, because we have these other historical documents that verify and sort of corroborate uh, what is happening back there in those ancient times. The first one is that in this, uh, this nation, this area of Sumer and of Chaldea, okay, this is the area that we're talking about today, there were, the, there, was a, there were tablets that were found. And in 1968, a translation into English of these tablets was published, you can look this up, in the Journal of the American Oriental Society, volume 88, and I can give you the details if you want to do this for yourself. Here's what was written on those tablets back then. It says this, In those days, the lands of Suber and Hamazi, harmony of tongues, the whole universe, the people in unison spoke to Enlil in one tongue. Then Enki, the Lord of Abundance, whose commands are trustworthy, changed the speech in their mouths, set up contention into it, into the speech of man that until then had been one. This is an ancient Chaldean uh, tablet that you, can, that you can see images of and you can read the translation of. Isn't that fascinating? Now, this was, this was written before the time of Moses, but here's another one from, from back then. This is from a book called the, the Chaldean Account of Genesis. Okay, and this was by, uh, published by a man named George Smith, an archaeologist and explorer. Another source said this, His heart was evil against the father of all the gods. Of him his heart was evil. So this is referring uh, to Nimrod. Okay, then Babylon brought to subjection. Small and great confounded their speech. Their strong place, tower, all the day they founded. To their strong place in the night, entirely he made an end. Bitterly they wept at Babi, or Babel. Very much they grieved. Okay, this is a historical, these are little, little documents that you can find. It's fascinating, isn't it? Now, that was there, that was in the Middle East, that was where these things originated. And because of the dry, the, the arid um, uh, setting, some of these things have been preserved for so long. It's just amazing. Here are some from our continent, from down in Mexico. Okay, now this is from uh, the Toltecs and the Aztecs. Okay, this would be in the Mexican area today. And in a book that was published in the 1500s by a historian who was interviewing these, um, these chiefs of these Aztecs and Toltecs, has written these accounts. Okay, this was preserved through their history. And this was written by a historian who interviewed them when Spain was colonizing Mexico. And they were calling it New Spain at the time. It's a book called The Historia Antigua de la Nueva uh, España. Okay, and this is what it says. This is what was recorded. All was a plain. All was a plain. And immediately after the light and the sun arose in the east, 
there appeared gigantic men. They determined to build a tower so high that its summit should reach the sky. Having collected materials for the purpose, they found a very adhesive clay and bitumen, and which, and with which they speedily commenced to build the tower. And having reared it to the greatest possible altitude, so that they say it reached to the sky, the Lord of the heavens, enraged, said to the inhabitants of the sky, Have you observed how they of the earth have built a high and haughty tower? Come and confound them. Immediately the inhabitants of the sky sallied forth like flashes of lightning. They destroyed the edifice and divided and scattered its builders to all parts of the earth. And here's another one from Antiquities of Mexico by, um, by a man named Kingsborough. This is what is written here. Again, it's the same source. Um, after men had multiplied, they erected a very high zaculi, which is today a tower of great height. This is in response to what they had of their history. And this is an account of why you have these towers in Mexico from the Aztecs. Um, in order to take refuge in it, should the second world be destroyed. It was a safety place. Uh, presently, their languages were confused and not being able to understand each other, they went to different parts of the earth. The Toltec, consisting of seven friends with their wives who understood the same language, came to these parts, having first passed great lands and seas, having lived in caves and having endured great hardships. In order to reach this land, they wandered 104 years through different parts of the world before they reached the Huehue Talapalan. 520 years after the flood. Isn't that fascinating? I feel like we got to play Indiana Jones for a little bit. Now, our faith doesn't rest on these documents because what we have in the Bible is the true story. It's the true account. So let's turn to that now. I just give that to you to say um, we shouldn't treat these things as legend. These are, this is the true account of what happened. Now, in, a Jewish, uh, in the Jewish book called the Talmud, the area that we're looking at here. So it says this, um, this plain in the land of Shinar, this place where they, they founded Babel. Okay? This in the, in the Talmud is called the Valley of the World. And the picture that you get of this place is that they got there and they said, this is where we want to live. Look at this. We have this river that's coming through. It's, it's full of nutrients. It's a great place to live. The, we love the weather. We love the view. It's this massive valley and we can, uh, we can have a civilization here. We can have crops, we can have herds, we can build a city. And so that's what they did. Um, it was pleasant and it was rich in resources. Verses 1 and 2, you see that people are gathering here and they're, they're learning how to make these bricks. Now, the question that we should ask is, what was the problem with what they were doing? What is the heart of the problem? And I just want to say it was not certain things. It was not the making of these bricks. Uh, technology in itself is not evil. Um, it's fascinating. If you look at the ruins of Babylon and how it's been rebuilt, they were made with bricks. The walls, the cities, the, the, the structures were made with bricks. And they're very similar to the bricks that you see today, uh, like these, these clay bricks. Uh, but bricks um, were not the problem. They were developing something that they found that was... Um, just in, in ancient times, a manufacturing advance. It was a major thing. It was like today, uh, I was talking to a friend, 
this is like we have 3D printing today. And you can, you can with, back when I was learning it and watching these, it was um, a polymer substance. But now they're using metals and they're using uh, different, different types of materials to, to just print. And it's an amazing way for manufacturing to create things and to build things. What they had then were bricks. And you can imagine these people, they were putting together these bricks. They were like, huh, we can, we can make bricks. And we put them in the fire. They're really strong and they last. And this is wonderful. So then they said, well, let's put some together. Oh, we found these, these pits called bitumen. What happens if we put these together? And they stuck together and they were strong. So they're building walls. And then this guy comes along and says, you know what? Bring everyone here. We're going to make a tower. We're going to make a city. And so this technology was developing and they were building things with these bricks. And they were like, we can do anything we want. The technology itself was not the evil. The city, the fact that they were going to have a city itself was not the problem. God is pretty fond of cities. There's Jerusalem. There's the New Jerusalem. It's not evil or good to live in the city or out here. Sinners in both places redeemed people in both places. And um, it was not a problem that they had this common language. Um, Common language is not the problem. Uh, If you travel and you, you speak to Christians in other countries to speak other languages, there's a common joke that I've, I've heard on different continents that our language will be the language of heaven. Um, now, there will be, I think, one, one language in heaven or else we'll be able to all speak all of them. I'm not sure how it'll work. Um, but pride of place probably belongs to Hebrew. I'm just guessing. So, um, so those things were not the problem. What was the problem? The problem was in this phrase, and look at this. Down here in verse 4, where, where they say this, Come, let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. This is the heart of the problem. And what is the problem here? The problem is this. It is seeking glory in a unity of rebellion against God. Now you say, where do I get that rebellion against God? Well, the commandment and the blessing that was given to Adam and Eve And then again to Noah and his family was this. God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So the rebellion is this. It's a life without regard to God that we see again saying, let's build our glory. Let's build a name for ourselves. We're not going to do what God says. We're going to do what we say and we will show ourselves to be great and we will be remembered in this earth. For our greatness. That is the heart of the problem. And that is a problem that will show up in the heart of every one of us. The problem of seeking glory for ourselves. And what they were doing was they were together seeking this glory for themselves. So everyone understands the strength of unity. Everybody in the world understands the strength of unity. In music, you can't have a symphony unless people are unified. In, you can't have harmony, you can't have beautiful music if, if musicians are not unified in what they're doing. In sports, it's the same way. Uh, any, any athletic team has to coordinate and be unified together in what they're doing. Any workplace, workplaces will do team building because you have to be unified to be successful, to accomplish things. So everybody knows this. In fact, when Abraham Lincoln uh, gave a speech, he could quote Jesus in saying, a house divided cannot stand, and everyone agrees. That's true. So we all understand the value of unity. 
Well, here's, here's something that we should observe from this as Christians. And speaking as a, as a church, this is going to shock some of you. Okay, so take your time with this. Church unity can be a very evil thing. Does it shock you? Church unity can be a very evil thing. God does not call us to simply be unified. The people in Babel were unified. Okay? Jesus does not simply call us to be unified. When he prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17, he, he wants us to be unified as he prays in the truth. If we're unified, but we're going in a wrong direction, and many churches do this, they will hold on to wrong doctrines. They will set their priorities wrongly. They're not in a line with God's word. A church that is unified can be a very evil thing if it is not in alignment with God's truth, if it is in any way in rebellion against God. Unity is not the goal. The goal is unity in the truth for which Jesus prayed. And any time you see in the scriptures this call for God to have his people be in unity, in harmony with one another, it is also to be in unity and harmony with himself, with God and his ways. So, if a church finds complete agreement in something that God hates, uh, such a unity is a grievous evil. So, back to our question. What are you building? What are you building individually? What are we building? <laughs> well, what we are building and what, um, how we are spending our time is revealed by how we live. The question can be answered by looking at uh, this, that um, are you living for yourself in your ways? Um, will you have your way and your glory? Or will your life be about God's plans and finding your place in His plan? That's the difference. Um, here the statement is, come, let us make a name. Let me give you an example of how we see this. And I know this is kind of a cheap example, but social media. If you look on social media, you will often see people that are, are displaying their own glory or building a name for themselves with uh, their beauty or with their, their intellect, uh, with their strength, with their possessions, and just putting them on display. But it's a more subtle thing than just what is obvious on social media. What you are building is revealed by how you spend your time and your energy. Okay? Um, it's, it's the way that Jesus uh, explained sort of the two houses. Like, what are you building? He said you can build your house on the sand or on the rock. And the difference there is this. If your life is a life of obedience to God's word, if you take his word and you live by it in obedience, that is building your house on the rock. And that is living for him. And the difference is this. Uh, Nimrod and these people in Babel, they wanted to make themselves great through their strength. And in the scriptures, you always see this pattern. God takes this human strength and he, he knocks it down. Uh, in the Magnificat, when Mary uh, sings her song, she says, you have, you have scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Like God sees our proud hearts. God sees when we are seeking glory for ourselves, for our name, so that we will be remembered, so that we will be glorified. And he says, not going to work. And that is a pattern of what is the, called the weakness of strength, 
when you are living for your strength and for your name, God will, God will knock it down like dominoes. But the difference is, there is a kind of strength in weakness. So that the Apostle Paul can say, when I am weak, then I am strong. Because when I'm weak, I know his power in my life. So what are you building? Okay. Um, back to, back to uh, Babel, uh, which is Babylon, and some things that happened there. There's an amazing history there. In just the last few years, you know how uh, Baghdad fell in the Iraq War, and Saddam Hussein was, was captured, and then he was tried and executed uh, for the things he was doing. He thought of himself as this great man, and he called himself the, the, the son of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Babylon was, was an amazing city, Babylon was the, the place for one of the seven wonders of the world, the Hanging Gardens. And the Tigris River goes through there, and you have these canals and these, these beautiful places where Saddam Hussein was seeking to recreate this. And he has this big mural with a picture of the city, and he has these two massive faces. One is Nebuchadnezzar, and one is Saddam Hussein. And it's, a, it's an incredible thing, because what happened to Nebuchadnezzar was he was humbled, in his pride. Let me go to that. In, um, in Daniel, in the book of Daniel, he, he's, he's looking at what he has built, these beautiful gardens and these great walls and these things, and it's sort of an echo of the pride of Babel before his time. And this is what he says when he's walking and he's looking around, and he says, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? You know what, you know what uh, Saddam Hussein had written on an inscription in this place that he was rebuilding? It writes, he wrote this, This was built by Saddam Hussein, son of Nebuchadnezzar, to glorify Iraq. God is able to humble such people, and he does. It's amazing. If you look at these great uh, leaders that wanted to be leaders of these great empires, God is able and will humble them. It won't last. That's the weakness of strength. Uh, There's more about that. This is what happened with Nebuchadnezzar. God humbled him and brought him to confess who God is. And he says at the end, after he was humbled and his hair grew out and his, his nails grew long and he had this mind of an animal for a time, then God restored him. And when God restored him, he said, God humbled me. And now I know that he's the real God. And this is what he said. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride he is able to humble. And it is a blessing when he humbles us, isn't it? It's hard, but it's good. It's a severe mercy. This is, uh, this is a pattern that you see with lots of world leaders, with people that have success in this world. Napoleon um, and uh, Benito Mussolini, these are guys that thought of themselves as connected with the Caesars of Rome, of leaders of these great empires. Adolf Hitler believed that he was such a leader, and he was going to create what was called the Third Reich, an empire that unified Europe, and that he thought, he said the Third Reich will last for a thousand years. Amazing. And they all fell. But they lasted for a while in their strength. Um, They were people who sought glory through strength. 
this, um, this greatness of man without God. And everyone that I just mentioned was in that pattern. God shows His glory and even gives glory to people. He, he, he grants a specific kind of glory to people that are rightly related to Him and under Him in authority. He gives glory. God, gives, God gets glory first through weakness. Um, God's plan over His image bearers in this fallen world and through His redemptive purposes is to show His strength through weakness. And you see that most ultimately at the cross. So as Christians, anyone that calls on the name of Christ should understand a few things. That we are people who depend on God for our strength. 100% every single day. We should thank Him for the breath that we have. That, that our hearts continue to beat. The, the fact, any, any kind of strength that we have is from Him. Any ability to do anything ultimately comes from Him. Um, and as people that call on His name, we are a part of a bigger plan. It's His plan. And I tell you, in my life as a, as a Christian, I could just give a testimony to this, I have found so much peace from realizing this, that the things that are happening in my life the things that are, are happening in the world and in the ministry are not ultimately on my shoulders. I come under God, as any Christian does, and I know that the outcome and the, the, the way that these things will play out is not ultimately my responsibility. What peace there is. So here's the big question. What are you building? What will you do with your life in this world? You see, I think the reason that people drive so hard in life to build a name for themselves, to leave a legacy so that they will be remembered, to find glory through strength. Any kind of strength they can have is because they're afraid. Because we can be afraid of being forgotten. We can be afraid of being insignificant. We can, be, we can have this fear that, what if, I'm, what if I'm doing all of this and no one even remembers me? That is a real thing. And so you get this, this call here, in Genesis 11, come, let us build. And the thing is, through that fear, through that desire for significance, for an enduring legacy, which those things are not bad, significance and a legacy, those are not bad, they become twisted into this come, let us build, a name for ourselves. We become selfish, self-serving, godless people with this kind of ambition to build our name to leave our legacy. We're fame-seeking. The solution, and what God offers us, is this. God says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to call on my name. I want you to be right, rightly related to me under my authority. We are to seek the glory of God and find our place in His plan. So that our first priority is God. Our first priority is to seek His glory to make Him famous. And an amazing thing happens when we do that. What happens is, we all of a sudden become significant. In John 5, Jesus is talking to some people after He heals a man on a Sabbath, and then they're questioning Him, and He says, you don't understand this because you're seeking the glory that comes from people. And He says, you should seek the glory that comes from God. Well, what is that? Well, there is a kind of glory that God gives people. You see, He made us to glorify Him and the kind of glory that He gives us is this. He has uniquely made each one of us. 
And when we put ourselves under him and we're living for his glory, we become significant. He makes a name for himself, but he gives us a place. He gives us an eternal place. And whatever role he gives us, it might be using your gifts in different ways within the church. It definitely is that. But we get a place in his kingdom, in his eternal purposes, and all of a sudden we become people that reflect his glory in this world in a really beautiful way, in a way that is eternally significant. And the things that we build, we're a part of something that will never fall. It will never topple. I mean, do you want eternal significance? You find it rightly related to your creator and your God and your judge. And he welcomes you to this. But it's not through your strength. It's interestingly through your weakness and his power through your life. And how he has uniquely made you, he will use you as an instrument in his hands. The relationships you have, the place where he has you, whatever your age, whatever your intellect, whatever your financial or physical resources are, he knows that. He's actually sovereign over all of that. And he will use you without exception when you come under him for his glory and you find your place in his plans. Now, let's, let's uh, address this. Some of us, many of us, have had dreams and we've been striving for certain things. Maybe for a long time in life we've gone after something and we have not been able to achieve it. Or we've had a dream that has been shattered, that has been completely robbed from us, where when you find yourself in life in a place where God makes your plans crash and fail, it is very hard. Let's be honest about that. But remember this, his plans are best. And the Lord gives, as Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. We should say at that point, blessed be the name of the Lord. We should trust him with what we don't understand. Even when it is deeply painful, even when our dreams are shattered, Okay, And be like Job and different than Nebuchadnezzar. Job said, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That, I, I know, is a really hard thing to say. It can only be done by faith. It can only be done by God's grace causing you to trust him through such a difficult thing. Well, the people of Babel were seeking glory through their strength to make a name for themselves. This was building a house on sand. Uh, What God did in his response was he caused confusion. That was a parallel for our lives when he brings our plans to confusion, to babble, to to frustration. God does this, and when he does it, it, it can be a severe mercy, a hard thing that is for our good. The people of Babel were seeking that glory. How does God respond? God says, if I can just paraphrase this, summarize this, God says, I will make a name among man for my glory, and I'm going to do it through weakness. We don't have to even go past this passage to see it. On the one side of this passage, we see Nimrod, who was, after the flood, one of the mightiest men, the beginning of these great men post-flood. And then after the flood, and after this story of Babel, what do we see? Here's, the, here's an interesting thing. This is a contrast that you get. Okay? Ironically, the people of Babel got exactly what they feared. Through God's frustration, God still accomplished his purposes. They were afraid that they would be scattered 
what God does is he scatters them and they end up across the face of the earth. God will accomplish his plans and his purposes whether we are in alignment with them or not. And immediately next, look at the way that this passage ends. After the people are frustrated in their attempts to make a name for themselves, verse 10 says, these are the generations of Shem. Now this is something we have to understand the Hebrew. Because the Hebrew word for name is Shem. So the people that were seeking glory through a unified effort of their strength were frustrated in making that name. And then God says, with this man who is... There's not, there's not a lot about him, but he says, let me tell you about Mr. Name over here. And then we follow it down to the end of this passage, and we have a man named Abram. In weakness, his wife was barren. This is the first barrenness in the Bible. And in Genesis, there are only three accounts of barrenness. And you know who are the three that are barren in Genesis? Three wives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay? The first three patriarchs had wives that were barren. And yet God says, I'll make a name through these people even in their weakness. And I'll show my strength. And I will display my glory because my purposes will stand. And the people that find themselves under my name, rightly related to me, and are part of my plans, they will know this, and they will even have a name for themselves. Look at what God promises to Abraham. His name is Abram at first, and God changes it later to Abraham. So, from exalted father to a father of many nations. He promises him several things. He says, I will make, verse 2, I will make you a name. God says that to Abraham, this descendant of Shem, in weakness, a man that's leaving this great civilization of Chaldea. And he goes goes west. He goes over to where he ended up in Canaan. And he's just a sojourner, a traveler. And God is with him. But God says, I will make you a name. He says, I will make of you a great nation. When we are gripped by God's grace and we find ourselves under his plan, God uses us. And he makes us significant, eternally. Everybody knows the name Abraham now. And God's plan, uh, through this use of, of this man Abraham, through Abraham he promises later a seed who would glorify God and bless all the nations through human weakness. And that one, in Galatians we see, and in other places, was the descendant of Abraham, this child of the promise. He was the one that Isaac prefigured where there was a sacrifice at Moriah, and God said, stop. But whenever Jesus, who is that heir, went to that same mountain, which was the the place where they built Jerusalem and the temple, and Jesus was taken outside the city, and he died on the cross, through his weakness, through his death, God did not stop. And through his weakness, God showed his power, God accomplished his purpose, and he showed his strength. And that is always the pattern for God's people. We're running out of time. I just want to give you a little bit of homework for this afternoon. God promised through the prophet Zephaniah in chapter 3, if you want to write this down, this is an amazing passage. Just pour over it later this afternoon. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. What God did in confounding and blah, 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 by creating this babble, this confusion at Babylon, he promised through the prophets... 
I will come down and I'm going to undo it. And all the things that I did there that scattered, I'm going to bring people back together on the right terms. Zephaniah chapter 3, check it out later. All the things that God does, He promises. Uh, all the things that God promises, He will do. And you can rely on that. So here is, here is a beginning of the promise in Zephaniah to restore it. What we heard earlier in Zach's children's sermon from Acts chapter 2. Do you know that while people were trying to make a name, and people are always trying to make a name for themselves, when God brought all these people from all these different languages together on that day of Pentecost, and He poured out His Spirit, what happened was God came down, just like Genesis 5, 11, 5, verse 5. The Holy Spirit came down on that day, and He began to accomplish this. And it says in, in Acts 2, whenever Peter is explaining what's happening, he says that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then later he explains this, the very summary of this. What should we do? And the summary is this. It's aligning with the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. What is he saying? He's saying this is the very basis, this is a very basic aspect of salvation. You see, a person can claim to be a Christian, and Jesus is their example. That's not what it means to be a Christian. You're still building a name for yourself and he's your helper. That's not what it means to be a Christian. Your whole life is depending on Christ. And under his name, you put yourself for being wrapped up in his righteousness. Your life is not your own anymore. It belongs to him. You're finding yourself in his plans. And he welcomes you. And you are gathered into his kingdom. In fact, in Revelation 7, you see people from every tribe and nation and language. And what is the point there? that God will fully accomplish what he began at Pentecost, what he promised through Zephaniah, what he did by confusing all the people at Babylon. And there will be people on that day from every language, it says, from every tribe, from every ethnic group in the world on that day to give him praise when he fully does this. And Jesus did this through weakness. Philippians 2, he came down through the incarnation, which next week we're going to pick up on, and we're going to have a series for Advent on the incarnation of Christ. Here's a little preview. Jesus came down in Acts 2. He humbled himself. And he, he, through his weakness, gave God glory. And God showed himself strong. And through his weakness, he took the lowest place. He humbled himself to the very point of death. As a servant, he went all the way to the cross. And he said, we should look at him. And that's the pattern for us. That's the point of of Philippians 2, so that we will do nothing from rivalry or selfish ambition. In other words, building a name for ourselves. So Philippians 2 says, this is the end result. When you follow this pattern of weakness, God exalts. God exalts the humble and he humbles the proud. The name that is above every other name has been given to Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that it is to that name that everyone will acknowledge on a day when he returns, that every tongue will confess, no matter what your language is. Every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. Everyone will be rightly related to our God on that day when Jesus returns. Whether we have before or after makes an eternity of difference. So my call to you is this.
If you don't know Him in this way, rightly relate yourself, repent of your sins, and take shelter under Jesus so that He is the refuge for your soul and for all eternity. He did that for you. He did that so that you could have life. And then I want to leave everyone with this question. I want you to keep thinking about this. What are you building? Are you seeking glory from man through your strength? You're still stuck in the fear of man, if that's true. Or are you seeking the glory of God through weakness? And that's what we need to do. We need to find our place in His plan. We need to receive the glory as He bestows it as His servants. Let's pray together.